Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Smith, and today we have Gills Club scientist Camilla Caceres on the pod. Throughout our interview, we are going to be learning about how her work in local communities in Colombia and as well as where she currently lives in Florida and looking at how she is interacting with hunters and fishers to help educate local communities about local conservation efforts and how we can collaborate with these stakeholders in helping with animal and wildlife conservation. We will also talk about her journey as someone from Colombia and immigrating to the United States and how growing up in the United States and schooling here, then being able to travel back to Colombia for her PhD work. We also have some housekeeping to do as well. If you are interested in applying for the Gills Club scholarship, that runs until the end of this month of March. If you would like to learn more, please head over to our website or our social medias. Or if you did not listen to our last episode with Maggie Winchester, we talk about the scholarship and the class that she will be a co-professor in that that scholarship goes toward. So you can find all those links in the podcast description or over on our website. And last but not least, please do not forget to rate, subscribe, and review. Share this podcast with a friend. We really do appreciate it, and it helps us get noticed in the podcast sphere. So sit back and relax. This is a really exciting interview, being able to explore all of the different depths of science and science communication. So enjoy our interview with Dr. Camilla Caceres. Welcome everyone to the Gills Talk podcast. Today we have Gills Club scientist Camilla Caceres today, uh, or I should say Dr. Camilla Caceres today. Camilla, oh my goodness, you were featured with us, I think 2018, 2019, and you were working toward that PhD then, but now we have your PhD, so so exciting. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I think we worked, it was quite a few years ago before the pandemic and definitely lots has happened since then. Yes, I gosh, so much has happened <laughs> since then. So I think we should just, I think we should just get started then and learning. Um, let's start with your PhD, maybe then work a little bit backwards from there, um, and we can go from that. So I'd love to know um, your your PhD and the process through that. Yeah, so I actually really loved my PhD because I was able to combine the passion that I've always had since I was a kid, which was passion for sharks. Um, and also something that I learned more recently, which is kind of community involvement and more of the human dimension side of conservation um, and just doing outreach and education when it comes to nature and these topics. I'm also from Colombia. So for me, one of my priorities was to do a project in my home country. I always felt some sort of guilt about leaving and immigrating and not being able to help or push forward uh, the science in my country. So for the PhD, um, my number one priority was to do a shark project in Colombia. And I was very uh, thankful to be able to accomplish that. Uh, but I worked in the greater Caribbean. So I was also able to work in Tobago from Trinidad and Tobago, Guadeloupe and Martinique, which are French islands in the Caribbean. Um, and I also did some work here in Florida in the Florida with sharks and with fishers. I love that you have such this broad scope of where you were able to do your work and 
how amazing is that you'd be able to do work in your home country of Colombia as well? You know, I don't think we have had anyone that is, no, there's no, there's no, we have not had anyone being able to work there in Colombia in your home country. So I mean, what a sense of pride that had to be for you. Yeah, it was great. And it was definitely also a lot of learning uh, because I'm from Bogota, which is in the mountains, a really big city. But the work that I did was off the coast of Cartagena, a coastal city uh, in the Caribbean. So it was, even though I am Colombian, it was a very different community and different side of Colombia. And so I'm just really happy to have gotten to know that part and, um, of course, getting to work in, in our oceans. Yeah. So you just mentioned you're from the mountains of Colombia. So then how does a mountain girl from Colombia do work with sharks? That is a great question. Well, I think I've always wanted to be a marine biologist since my first memory when my parents took me to an aquarium. Um, I think a lot of biologists kind of do start liking dolphins. So that was my first, you know, idea of what I thought I wanted to do. Um, but then it was when I was a little older, I was already in the United States. I had already immigrated with my parents and they gifted me for Christmas this wonderful book, The Encyclopedia of Sharks very, you know, general introductory book. And I just fell in love and, and never changed my mind. So even though both in Colombia and when I was in North Carolina, I was far away from the ocean. I always knew that my end game was to end up you know, near the ocean and working with sharks. So I just never gave up on that. I love that. Like a book like sparked the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, pretty much a Christmas present specifically. Yeah. So <laughs> You never know. You never know what's going to like if you have any little ones in your life or anyone that is listening, if it is, um, you know, a niece or a nephew or your own child or just like a friend that has a little one, you know, you never know what you're going to be able to give them to spark their interest in what their career is. I love that story. Yeah, it makes me very happy. And I'm actually going back to the to the book story, not to be uh, shamelessly plugging, but now it's come full circle because this past year. Uh, we were able to publish a book with Minorities in Shark Sciences, and I was lucky to be one of the editors. And this is a book that, even though it is a science textbook, it's aimed at people who uh, may not have a college education or may not have some sort of formal learning when it comes to biology or sharks. We wrote it for high schoolers or for like a grandma who loves to watch documentaries or for someone who's in the in the fishing field but might have never learned about the biology of fish. So. It was really great to be able to work on that book and support uh, minorities in shark sciences. And then to be able to add that book to my bookshelf right next to the encyclopedia of sharks that I've had for over 20 years was definitely a full circle, very happy moment. for me. Absolutely. And that book is amazing. So if anyone would like to download that book, um, is it available on a digital realm or just physical? I think it is on PDF as well. You can find it on Amazon for hardcover and softcover, or you can also just Google Minorities in Shark Science book, and um, you should be able to buy it straight from the printer. Perfect. So I, um, for anyone that is, is interested, I'll put that in the link of the description of this podcast, so you'll be able to find it. So let's talk about Miss, because if anyone's been listening to the podcast for a while, you're probably familiar with Miss. We have had Jasmine. We have had... Carly, I'm working on getting Jada and Amani as well. We're getting there. Um, Jada, yes, they're is, amazing people. 
They are. They are. Um, Amani is actually a new Gills Club scientist. So she's going to be amazing. We're very excited. And we're getting Jada in as well. Um, Jada's actually going to be doing a talk for us. We're doing a a shark speaker series this winter at, at, at um, the Shark Center. She's going to be one of our speakers. So I'm so excited. Exciting. Yes. Um, those four women in minority and shark sciences or miss is really a, a group that has totally changed the shark world, I believe. Um, and in the last couple of years, it's just been so great to see them grow and to see just the impact that they can have on a community. So um, I'm very happy to be able to support them in any way that they do. Yeah. Um, and so you are involved in Miss. So I, um, you're on, are you, you're on their board? Are you an advisor? I am an advisor, particularly with the Latin American and Caribbean region. So, you know, trying to help them more outreach there, or if there's any materials they might need in Spanish or things of that nature, but it's definitely still a work in progress and, you know, figuring it out as, as, as they go. And as we go, cause, um, a very new NGO and there's there's lots of people lots of members everywhere so definitely evolving mm-hmm, absolutely um miss is such an incredible group we had um, a miss fellow last summer and we'll have one again this summer and um, we had Karina come in last year and Karina was so so fun just light and bubbly and just was this person that just like when we were down she was our one that like got us back up <laughs> that's amazing that's a great attitude Oh, oh, yes. Yes. Um, I definitely kept some of her positive attitude instilled in me still. But <laughs> she, she was great. Um, but I think going back to your research, you know, you're looking, you, you were doing community engagement and everything. And I would love to hear this seems to almost be a theme, I think, of this season for the podcast. We have a lot of scientists that are doing shark science, but also really tying in community engagement and education as well. So I would love to hear them how you were tying that into your research. Great. Yes. So I specifically work with artisanal or small scale fishers. Um, Now, those terms are sometimes used interchangeably um, and a lot of people might assume what they mean, but they don't really know exactly. Um, So just to quickly define it, artisanal means mostly handmade. So when we talk about artisanal soap or artisanal jewelry, we're talking about something that's handmade and not mass produced. And with fisheries, it's the same. It's gears that they made themselves, uh, sometimes boats that they made themselves. It's all very low technology, um, really what artisanal means. Small-scale fisheries, which usually overlap with artisanal, uh, just means that the size of the boat and the size of the fishing crew is small. So, for example, sports fishing here in the United States could be considered small fisheries because usually they're small boats, usually it's just a couple people. However, there's a very high level of technology used in the United States, so that makes it not an artisanal fisheries. In the Caribbean and in Colombia, artisanal and small-scale fisheries are very prevalent and actually throughout the world um it's estimated that around 95 percent of the world's fishers are small-scale fishers wow uh up to half of the world catches are made by small-scale fishers so it's very common in the caribbean and it's common in colombia and so i wanted to see how does their fishery uh how does their beliefs uh affect what they're catching and you know are they catching sharks how many sharks because really there's not a lot of data behind it because they kind of leave their home and go fish for a couple hours and come back. There's not any official landing docks. A lot of the times, none of that catch is, you know, 
written down or quantified. And so I just wanted to know, are they catching sharks? How many, what, how do they feel about sharks? Do sharks have some other value to them, religious or just cultural besides the money that they make from it? And so that was half of the projects that I did was interviewing fishers about their practices and beliefs regarding sharks and stingrays rays as well. And then the other half was to do uh, rubs, gated remote underwater videos, which are these underwater GoPros with bait, um, just to see what did we see in the ocean and did it line up with what the fishers were reporting. Interesting. So I like how there is this tie between it all because it is important because, again, a theme here, a lot of our scientists work with fishers because fishes are out there a lot more than what a scientist can get out there. And I think it's just like, we're fairly driving home this conception each episode that like, there is this relationship that is so important between science and fishers. And then even us as well, you know, you just said 95% of the world's catches from small fishers, like, you know, we're eating what they're catching as well. So it's super important to know. Yeah, actually, now that you mentioned that, one of my favorite stories when I did my research project in Colombia is that as I was there in one of the islands interviewing them about um, shark catches, they had a big, lucky tuna day, and they caught about a ton of tuna, which a ton for small-scale fishers in a day is a lot. I mean, it's hard to even fit it on their boats. And so they had this big celebration. It was a big party. It was the tuna party, tuna day. And a couple weeks later, when I was back in my home in Miami, I was hungry. I was being kind of lazy. I went for a can of tuna. And out of curiosity, I looked at the bottom of it. And it said, tuna from Colombia. <laughs> like this, it could be this tuna. Or, you know, it could have been from a year ago. But the connection to sharks and fisheries, to seafood, and what we eat and buy at the supermarket is not as obvious to people or society as it should be. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I think that's why, um, my gosh, there's so many groups that you can check out to that shares, you know, like what, where your seafood comes from and like what to buy and things like that. So definitely it all ties in. It does. We might not recognize it, but it does at some point. (laughs) Yeah. It's a small world. So then how are you um, using your skills from your PhD, what you're, what you learned from your PhD into like what you currently do and what your current interests are? Right. So my current interest after the pandemic, I went through this whole, you know, introspection. What do I want to do? And even though sharks have been my passion since I was very little, as well as marine biology, I think I wanted to expand even further. And so now I'm interested in sort of any community engagement when it comes to conservation. So also hunters, the way they behave and their conservation values are very similar to fishers. And now um, there's also a lot more non-consumptive stakeholders. So people who are interested in these uh, topics, but might not be actively fishing, catching or killing a deer or, you know, hunting that way. And, And so we have wildlife recreation viewers or just any sort of recreation, like horseback riding, uh, all of these stakeholders have strong opinions about conservation, about land or the water that they use and that they live in. And they also, like you mentioned, have a lot of knowledge because they're out there daily or if not weekly and are very well aware of their you know, area more than a scientist who might be from a different area. 
So now I'm just working on broader uh, stakeholder involvement and making sure that we have uh, diverse voices included in conservation and not just the loud or the wealthy voices driving the conversation. Was that something that was a challenge for you to switch from doing something, you know, obviously ocean-based animals to land or since, you know, those concepts are very similar that it was an easier transition? I think definitely a lot of the skills and tools that I learned are very helpful. Um, However, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been different. I've had to learn a lot about land animals. I mean, even though I'm a biologist, I'm a marine biologist, so I don't know a lot about plants or trees or birds. Um, And so it's been a steep learning curve when it comes to um, the biodiversity side of it. But with the communities, I'm currently working with Florida communities. So I have been living in Florida for almost 10 years. I have been working with fishermen in uh, the Florida Keys for quite a few years. And so um, knowing the Florida community, knowing the Hispanic community, um, knowing just how people feel about hunting and fishing here has been extremely helpful to the work that I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. And I think um, how you said it's important to have everyone involved, not just the loud, not just the wealthy, because it just doesn't affect them and it affects everyone else too. Um, So I think it is it's incredible to see that, you know, you are being able to, if it is working through MISS or even with, um, you know, what your current career goals are that, you know, you are able to bring in these other groups to be involved and to be seen and heard. Right. And it's super important for two reasons. Well, one, because usually the people making these conservation decisions are politicians or scientists like ourselves that very often are very removed, uh, not just geographically, geographically from the location that we're talking about, but also just from the community and their beliefs and their priorities. And so it's difficult to make a conservation decision if the community doesn't support it or doesn't agree with it. It's very likely that it's not going to be effective. So it's just not a very realistic solution to keep all the decision making within the ivory tower of politicians and scientists. But another reason why it's important to involve diverse groups and voices is that we might be losing support for conservation as our traditional hunters and fishers age. The younger generations are not quite as involved in these activities. And so we need to create and support any interest or any, you know, love and passion that white communities might have for the outdoors and for nature, um, because these traditional stakeholders are being, you know, a little bit faced out and and these uh, traditions are not being passed down as much. And so we need to create new interest and new support for the outdoors and nature and conservation. So then with that, creating that interest, I know you probably don't have the answer to this because (laughs) no one really has the answer, but like, how, how does one even start thinking of like, how can I even create that interest. And I guess it's just going out there and talking to the community saying, you know, what my, what my role is here with the conservancy, if it's this podcast and sharing your work, you know, or just like talking to people at a conservation day event, you know, like how does one even like start with that? I know, I know like I said, I mean, it's hard to even have an answer because it's so vast. <laughs> yes. It is very difficult because even within Florida, Florida is a very big state. We have like of very different communities so how to reach out to them and and you know make them feel involved and listened to is very difficult 
Uh, but like you said, all you have to do is just go out to the community, um, meet them, you know, where they are. If you can ask them what their interests are, there's already a lot of interest. What we need to do is support that interest or give them opportunities to maybe formalize more of their learning. If, for example, it's birding and there's already a community that loves birds, but maybe they don't have binoculars or they don't know how to use binoculars or, you know, just kind of meeting them and seeing what are your interests? How can we support you? And you know, how can we tie this more to the land and to the ocean? But the communities already have lots of ideas and they already have, you know, lots of love and support. So really it's just, you know, uh, opening the door and making sure we're listening to, to their priorities. Because like you said, usually it's the wealthy or the loud get listened to, but there's lots of communities out there taking care of the environment, loving the environment. Um, and we just need to learn more about them and their preferences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, yeah, I agree. I think it's just giving them that opportunity. It's, like, it's And I agree. It's like you said, they probably already have that idea. They just don't have an outlet to express it and to be able to share it with anyone. So, right. Yeah. Lots of these communities have a voice already. We just you know need, need to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. I want to just go back a little bit. Because okay. you were talking about part of your, your PhD um, with your bruvs. And I I always love when our scientists use bruvs because, you know, you never know what you're going to see. So I have to ask, what's like the craziest thing you've seen on your bruv? <laughs> um, <laughs> so my bruv experience in the Caribbean was probably very different from everyone else's. Ah. Because, um, unfortunately, the sites that I get to did get to go to were significantly degraded um, with a lot of water quality problems. There was a lot of very, um, you know, green water um, in quite a a few bruvs. I did see, you know, just like trash floating by. Um, So unfortunately in my bruvs, there wasn't anything super exciting, Um, but we did get to see, you know, tons of different fish and eels. We saw um, crabs and octopus. So what I really enjoyed watching was not just looking for sharks and rays, but also um, all these other reef animals interacting and on camera and on the wealth of information that you can get from brubs besides whatever your target species is, because you can uh, get a look at, you know, what the coral health looks like. Um, you get to see uh, if there's any human activity in a lot of my bros. I could pick up boat noises from boats going by. I believe in one of my bros, there was a spear fisher that showed up swimming by. So high human activity on my bros. Which I think is still cool. Don't, don't put down your bros because it wasn't amazing. I think that still sounds amazing because you're seeing a completely different picture when not to be punny because you are <laughs> you're seeing this completely Literally. aspect um you know a lot of our scientists when they use bruvs you know they are usually like a baited bruv or um, well they are baited but um you know like you're seeing different types of you know fast action activity but you know for you though you're getting this bigger picture of what is happening within that area and that community. And you're, like you said, you're seeing the water quality, you're seeing pollution, you're seeing people still using that area and utilizing that area for their own well-being or recreation as well. So, um, no, I still think that's still pretty cool. You know, you get to see. Yeah. The, the shark scientist side of me, of course, is a bit jealous of those bruvs that I see where there's a great white or you see like a pot of dolphins swimming by or something like that. So I didn't get to catch, you know, any sort of super amazing 
uh, megafauna or wildlife on it, but there were some very interesting um, behaviors, both from human and, and from fish that I saw. I saw lots of fish fights. I saw lots of eels chasing each other. Um, after you spend so many minutes watching these videos, you really um, you know, start to get entertained by what all the animals are doing. Oh, yes. And in one of my marine biology professors in college has the frying pan shoals live cam. He, he maintains that. And so what we would do for extra credit in marine bio, we was like, watch the live cam and identify fish on it. And then like screen, screenshot it and send it to me. But we would have it on in the background of our computer studying for finals or for a test because they're just so fun to watch and have. They're just really relaxing. Yes, it's relaxing. It's fun. It's great um, background images. I agree. And now there's so many, you know, baited cameras on land as well that you can see coyotes and bears and um, you know, the options really are infinite. Oh, yes. And infinite. And there's so many live cams. So like if anyone is interested in just needing like some Zen things in the background at work or when you're at home, there are live cams for everything. There's live cams for um for grizzly bears. I found that during the fat bear week. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. We had that going on in our, our, our office, like our office. We are a shark office, obviously, but fat, fat bear week for us, like <laughs> stop sharks for, for, for that week for us but um coming through you know you are someone you said like you said you're from Colombia you came here to the states finding with your love for sharks so being able to go through all of your schooling um what kind of like sometimes like challenges hardships you know did you have going through you know um being someone coming in from another country and then kind of doing school through the U.S. and eventually going back to be able then to work in Colombia yeah, well, school, I did most of my, you know, formal education in the United States. And by the time I started college, I had already been living in the U.S. for a few years. So, uh, you know, learning how to speak English and all those big humps that you have to overcome, getting my green card, getting my U.S. citizenship, I was able to do all of that before I started college. Um, so thankfully, college, I didn't really have to process any of those immigration um, issues or, or, you know, feelings that you have when you and in undergrad, I had a great time. I really loved it. Um, I volunteered and worked at a primate lab for four years. And even though I learned a lot about science and labs and animal behavior, um, I always knew sharks were my, my passion. And so I always felt a little bit down about that, that I didn't get to work with sharks in undergrad or when I started um, grad school, that other people had already had that experience and I didn't. Um, and so to anyone out there who is an undergrad or um, hasn't gotten to work with sharks yet, yet you know that's your dream, um, you know, don't worry about it. Learn all these other skills, yeah. you know, professors, do internships, whatever you can, because um, eventually you will get to work with sharks and you will get to follow that dream. So don't feel like you're late or like you're missing experience and that you won't be able to do that, because um, thankfully I did um, eventually get to work with sharks. and so. When I started graduate school, I was, you know, living my dream. I was finally working with sharks. I was going to work in the Caribbean. I was living in Miami, which is a city that I absolutely love. So more of my problems or roadblocks there was just, um, you know, believing in myself. The PhD can take a lot out of you. It can last a lot of years. It can be a very lonely experience. 
because even though you might have great friends, they might not be working on the exact same project or with the exact same collaborators. And so it really is a world of your own that you have to create and that you have to, you know, conquer. And so I did have, you know, my self-doubt moments and definitely mental health is an issue in the grad school community. And so making sure that you have a support system, making sure that you take care of your sleep, that you're eating well, um, don't completely bail on family or friends, um, you know, making sure you have a life work balance is really, really important. And so I think those, those were pretty much more of the, the holdups that I had during my career, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to how you said, you know, like not working with sharks right away. And I think that was, as you said, you know, you were still learning things and learning skills you know, that helped you then in, you know, your grad program and into your, your PhD. And it's something that I always say with you too, that, you know, you, you can always start broad and then go in and you will always things. My first thing in college, I worked with sea turtles. I didn't work with sharks right away. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, And for me, you know, I learned how to journal and take proper notes as I was sitting on the beach all night waiting for a sea turtle nest to hatch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the field experience you can get, you know, being anywhere where, you know, for in the heat, under the sun, taking notes, taking measurements, like all of that is applicable and doesn't have to be, you know, only on sharks. And and like you said, actually, I think it's better to have some background on, on other uh, habitats or other animals before you go into the shark world, um, just because the shark world requires a lot of commitment and a lot of energy and it definitely does require uh, some expertise and so just building all these other tools is a great way to go even if you're not with the same animal yet Mm -hmm. absolutely so before we wrap up today Camilla I know you already kind of shared some good knowledge and tips along the way you shared some great advice as you said you know taking care of your mental health and being able you know to eat right and keep your family and your tribe and your friends and Is there anything else you would like to add? Any other advice you want to give out to the listeners out there today? Um, Sure. I guess just um, talk talk about these topics. You know, if there's a cool documentary that you see, uh, even if you've been binge watching, you know, Love Island for 12 hours, like maybe (laughs) something different, watch that documentary or listen to a new podcast or Maybe when you're in the line at CVS, you pick up that Nat Geo magazine at the cashier. Um, nature is all around us. It's for everyone. Um, sometimes it can seem inaccessible or it, you have to be like, oh, well, in order to have a great outdoors experience, I need to go to Thailand or I need to go to Fiji. But no, there's so many amazing state and national parks. There's so even, you know, city parks. There's so many opportunities to learn and get involved with nature and the outdoors. And so. Um, just go for it. I love that. Nature is all around us. I think that's going to have to be the title of the, the this podcast. I love it. Love that. <laughs> before One last thing before I let you go. How can people stay in contact with you? How can they know what you're doing? What? How can they follow you on, on, on socials? Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. My handle is DrCassidus13. So D-R-C-A- C-E-R-E-S 13. And that is the same handle for both Instagram and Twitter. And you can also find me at my website, which is www.mynamecamilacasades.com. The website, I will warn everyone, is a little outdated, but I'm getting back to it. Um, It does have lots of really cool information, and I'm hoping that in 2023, I'll uh, add even more to it. So you can also email me or contact me through the website. 
Perfect. I will have that all linked in the podcast description as well. So everyone go out and follow Camilla. Keep up with her work. So thank you so much for coming on today. This was a blast to be able to talk to you and finally get to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast. Science communication is so important. And I love podcasts. Thank you.